0: turn to uh, the book of Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we will be this morning as we continue this series. Through the book of Nehemiah called Restore, we're about halfway through the study. In the first half of this book we've been tracking with this story that took place 400 years before the coming of Christ uh, near the end or at the end of uh, the Old Testament history portion of the Old Testament. And it tracks and covers the story about an everyday a uh, guy, a Hebrew named Nehemiah, who is uh, living uh, in Persia, working as a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, and how God raised him up to lead a third wave of Israelites back to uh, Jerusalem to, on mission for God, to rebuild the cities, the, uh, the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And so we've been uh, following that story, and uh, we've seen them face a lot of opposition, And yet we've seen God's faithfulness shine through uh, every step of the way. In the face of all the dangers, toils, and snares, uh, God's people have depended on God. Uh, We've seen them persevere in hard work, uh, good work. they partnered together in the work. They've kept their eyes on the Lord. And in 52 days, the the wall's now done. It's an amazing accomplishment. The walls are up. The gates are hung. Uh, The construction project is complete. The Jewish families that we see listed in chapter 7... I've all moved into the city and the big question is why don't we just stop right here, right? This seems like a good place to stop, right? Here's why we don't stop right here because all of this was ultimately never about the restoration of the wall. It was about God doing a restorative work in his people. You know, God's always doing a restorative work among his people. You know, the rest of this book is going to focus on that truth. He's always doing a reviving restorative work. And you know what? He always uses the same tool to do it. He always uses the same tool to work on us, to shape us, to transform us, and to build us up. A really popular show over in recent years uh, that many of you probably watch is a show called Fixer Upper. Any fans out there of Fixer Upper? And uh, my, my wife watches it more than I do. If I get some of these details wrong, details wrong forgive me. All right, but I, you know, the general idea of the show is you have people who are kind uh, of selected on this show to be helped by these really good fixer-upper people, all right? So let's say that the people's budget is like $100,000, uh, then they're going to maybe buy, let's say, a, a $10,000 uh, house, and these fixer-upper people are going to get to work, and by the end of the show, that $10,000 house is worth $400,000 somehow. I don't know. It's crazy, man. They take a house that I would have just, like, said, like, you know, bulldoze that over and start start again, and yet they get in there, and they begin to work. They begin to uh, rip out flooring. They begin to kick over walls. They begin to change things. They begin to give our wives all kinds of fun ideas for us to do, projects for us to do on our house. All right? Anybody out there with me? But the whole show, uh, you know, is about, you know, basically this. They're gutting out houses and remaking them into something else. They're gutting out houses and they're transforming them into something new. And in a sense, this is the way that God works spiritually in our life and in the life of a church. He restores. He he saves us. And then He continues to work on us. He continues this restorative work in our life to tear things down that don't belong. To topple down idols that shouldn't be in our heart. He rebuilds. He reshapes. He cleans up. He reorganizes. He transforms us. He molds us. He does this glorious work in the life of His disciples. In the life of His church. And the main tool of restoration He uses, and this never changes, is His work. His word is what he uses uses to build up his people. And at times, his word will begin to work and restore the lives of people who are in a group together. You know what we call that? We call that revival. At times, we see revival break out in this world and on this earth. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, that's exactly what we see. What we see is that what these people needed ultimately wasn't new walls. It wasn't a new improved city. What they needed is a renewed spirit. They needed to experience what we need to experience, and that's revival. And this chapter shows us what true revival looks like. Uh, What comes to mind when people hear revival, it may vary. What comes to your mind when you think about revival? You think about a week long of preaching in a church that you grew up in? You think about a big tent? Things happening under that big tent. Probably all kinds of things. One commentator, Bible commentator, defined it like this this week that I read, and I thought this was good. Revival is the intensification of what God is always doing. Revival is the intensification of what God is always doing. You say, what is God always doing? God is always at work. God is always... Advancing his kingdom. God is always saving. God is always working. God is always restoring. God is always healing. God is always resurrecting. God is always transforming. He is always at work. And what revival is, is it's an intense amplification of all of those things, all happening at a deep level within a body of people in such a way that it, it begins to spread and impact a community around them, a city around them, even at times, like church history, a nation. If we polled the room this morning don't raise your hand i don't want you to answer this in your head but i I would venture to say that if i polled the room and asked the question who would love to see revival sweep across this community who would love to see revival sweep across this city who would love to see revival sweep across this country i would say most of us in the room would raise our hands say yeah i'd I'd like to see that the question is how do we experience it how do we see that happen Well, the the answer to that is we don't god schedules that We can't schedule that. God's in charge of that. God's in charge of the great revivals that we've seen happen throughout history. and He continues to be in charge of the way that he moves in that special way. But what we can do that's very helpful is we can slow down and dissect this moment. that A documented revival right here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Right here in the pages of scripture. And walk through it and identify in Nehemiah chapter 8 symptoms of true revival. That's what we're going to do this morning. And here's the big symptom of of true revival. It's this. You want to know revival's taking place in a place? Here's the symptom. This is what you're going to see happening in any place where revival's happening. You're going to see a renewed, passionate, genuine love for God's Word. Where there is a deep love for the primary restoration tool God uses to work in people's lives and, and in a church, revival is taking place there. If we're going to see a... A move of God today in our lives, if we're going to see a move of God in our church, it starts with a renewed love for His Word. God builds up the lives of His disciples through it. God centers our homes around Jesus through His Word. God builds up His church by His Word. God restores us by His Word. God revives His people by His Word. This is why we hold to uh, one of our core biblical values here is Clear biblical teaching. This is, this is going to show you why this morning. This is going to remind you why we value that this morning. And hey, this passage is also going to remind you and help you understand why we choose to stand when we read the Bible. So let's stand and let's read the Bible this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they had heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose and beside him stood Manathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah. And on his right, Padiah, Pad- Pad- Mishael, Micaijah, M- K- Hashem. Somebody want to try that one? <laughs> Hashbadana. By the way, man, I'm going to have to find these guys and apologize to them one day for butchering their names in heaven, right? Uh, and, and if you're looking for any baby names, these are some that maybe you these are unique, definitely unique. Zechariah, Meshulam, and on on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it uh, to to all all the people who stood, as he read, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, 13 other names right there that I'm not going to read. End of verse 7. All these guys helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave sense. Or gave this sense. So the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who is nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we're thankful this morning you wrote a book and that this morning we can lean in and we can understand it by your grace by the power of your spirit Lord may we approach this book may we approach this word like a people who look a lot like the people in Nehemiah chapter 8 God I pray this morning that you make us like a tree planted by streams of water that we would yield fruit that the spiritual leaves of our life would not wither And we thank you for your word, God. It is a clear expression of your grace. It is a clear expression of your love to us. We thank you for revealing yourself in a special way through it. And Lord, may we leave here with it positioned at an elevated place in our life. More elevated than it was when we walked in. And I pray by doing so. And putting ourselves underneath it, you would change us for your glory, for our good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to identify in this text three symptoms of genuine revival. Again, you want to know revival's taking place among a people. First, you're going to start seeing number one: people who are hungry to learn the word. People who are hungry to work, learn the word of God. What we're going to do is we're just going to work through this verse by verse for a few minutes. All right. Out of the gate, in verse one, it says, "As one man." I love that phrase. And that may not stand out to you as powerful as it really is right here until you realize how many people we're talking about that are rallied together that are all united. You have to back up and look at the end of chapter 7. And you calculate all those people, even count the choir. There's singers there. It's good church math. Always count the choir. And when you add them all up, it's over 50,000 people. Think about how big of a group this is. Over the last few nights, I've been tuning in trying to catch... Uh, Aaron Judge possibly hit the home run that would tie him with Roger Maris. And the stadiums where he's playing are packed out, sold out. In fact, I heard that in the stands of the left field, uh, in the left field bleachers, the tickets were selling for $1,200 a piece the other night. So people could maybe get their hands on one of those baseballs and get them a million dollars at an auction or something. But standing room only, and when you think about that amount of people, that's a large group of people. Around 50,000, 60,000 people in those Major League Baseball stadiums. That's the amount of people we're talking about right here. These are people that are all gathered together, united as one, rallied around what? Rallied around the Word of God. All right? So um, and what are they doing? What are they doing in unison? They're, they're requesting simply the Bible. You have 50,000 people here all together craving and hungry for the Word of God. In fact, you see that word understand six times throughout this chapter. By the time you get out of this chapter, what you're going to see is you're going to see a changed people. And what you have to recognize as you move through the chapter is over and over again you see this this theme of learning and understanding. It helps us understand that in order for us to experience a revival type of work, a restorative type of work in our life, it is not detached from a demonstration of a desire to learn God's word And to understand it. There's so many people today in the church who have never been transformed by God through His Word simply because you've just never stopped and slowed down and allowed your life to be submerged in it and moved towards it with a genuine desire to learn it and to understand it. You may be here this morning and you may say, you know what, I'm a little embarrassed by my lack of of Bible knowledge. I'm a Christian And there's a whole lot that I don't know. I want you to know you're in a good place this morning. You're in a place, hey, we're here to help. We've all been there. We all still, in many ways, feel like we're there. We're all growing. We're all learning. So it's okay if you're here this morning, you have little knowledge, but what we want to make sure is you're not there six months from now. We want to make sure you're not there a year from now. And what I want to encourage you with is this. If you really want to learn, you can learn. If you really want to understand the Word of God... You can understand it. God wrote His Word so you could understand it. He's generally revealed Himself through creation and He's revealed Himself through what theologians would call special revelation, ultimately through His Word. He's revealed Himself It's an expression of love through His Word because He wants to be known. And you can understand it. I want you to know this, and I want you to always remember this, that God is never in the business, one, of turning away anyone who approaches Him with a contrite heart, believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, and who throw the weight of their faith on what Jesus did and come to Him seeking salvation. God doesn't turn away people in that posture. And I want you to know also, believer, that once you get saved, God doesn't turn away disciples who approach His Word with a teachable heart, who seek to want to learn it and understand it. They tell Ezra, and you see this in these people, they tell Ezra, bring the book. I love that. We want to learn it. We know that there is a living God who has revealed himself through a living word. Bring it. We want to hear from it. Now, the word that Ezra begins to read and that they're begging him to begin to read to them is up to this point for them, the Bible consisted of five books. Called the law. All right. So they're they're literally they're begging right here for the law of Moses. And if you've read the Bible at all, this is a miracle right here. This is this is amazing. Right? They're they're bringing out the book. Bring they're talking about the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, right? You want to talk about a a symptom of a Holy Ghost move of God is when people are like, "Bring out Leviticus. Bring out Deuteronomy," right? I'm sorry. You maybe you're more holy than me. Have you ever woke, woke them in the morning, you know, like, "Lord, today, I'll take Leviticus and a latte. That's all I want. <laughs> Give me a little Deuteronomy with my donut and I'll be a happy camper. It's amazing, isn't it? They want the book. They want all of it. Now, why do they want all of it? Because in verse 1, it says, the law of Moses, that the who? The Lord had commanded Israel. That's why they want the book. Because something in their heart, the eyes of their heart have been opened up to the truth that their creator wrote a book. And they're hungry to hear From him through it. In verse 2, it says that Ezra brought him the book. And look at how it says, anyone and everyone who could understand were gathered there. Another one of our values there. You see a multi-generational gathering for worship right here. It's amazing. And all ages gathered together, craving the word. And in verse three, it says, Ezra began to read. Uh, the word to him he opens the book he begins to read the word but look at where he's standing he's standing in front of the water gate and i think this is an important note right here this is a gate that you learn about in chapter three but it's the only gate gate out of all the gates that need that didn't need to be repaired that represents a pretty significant symbolism right there right ezra's opening the word of god in front of the water gate that didn't need to be repaired why to communicate that he's opening a book that doesn't need to be repaired He's opening a book that's complete. He's opening a book that's sufficient. He's opening a book that's perfect. He's opening a book that doesn't need to be added to, that doesn't need anything to be taken away from. And Ezra picks up the perfect word of God and he just begins to read. Forget this, five to six hours straight. Early morning to midday, right? You know a group is hungry to learn right here because they're standing up listening to a six-hour sermon right here. Six hours. Our question is like, what did they do about childcare? Like, I don't understand. What in the world? Six hours straight? I don't know what they did about childcare. But what we do know is that their hearts are awakened so dramatically, gloriously, to the reality that God wrote a book and gave it to them to read and to learn and to know Him through that they're willing to stand up for six hours straight and to pay attention to each word that is being read. That's a lesson right there just, just to attentiveness when anytime the Word of God is being preached. Anytime the Word of God's being taught. Anytime you read the Word of God, we should not listen to sermons with the same posture and approach that we listened to the morning announcements before class started in school growing up. Remember that? It's poor people, nobody ever listened to them. Half the classroom is half asleep and half engaged. That's not the posture that you see right here in Nehemiah chapter 8. This is a people leaned in who are listening attentively to what, a six hour sermon? And you say, why? Because something's happened in their hearts. The Word of God has stayed the same. God hasn't gone anywhere. But what's happened in their hearts is the Word of God in their hearts has elevated to a place that it belongs. And they're orienting their lives, their families around this Word. In fact, even think about the way that, that the platform is positioned right here. And the Word of God is positioned on the platform. So Ezra is, is preaching and it makes a point here that they built this wooden platform. Probably not Ezra, probably of mine, some other guys. Ezra's just here to open the book and to read it. You know, a great lesson there about how the body of Christ is made up of all different parts. We all have a different part to play. Some teach, some serve, some encourage. We all have a part to play in the mission that God's called us to and a stage is built. And this is kind of our version of a stage or a pulpit. Maybe you're wondering, why why do we have a stage? Why do we have a pulpit? This will give you a little background as to why we choose to do this. Why do we choose to preach from a stage? Why? Because it communicates every Sunday when we gather together that this is the most elevated, the most important thing that we're centering ourselves around. It's a picture that reminds our hearts every time we gather, every Sunday, every Wednesday, it reminds us of this, that we are under the Word, we're never over the Word. The Word of God is authoritative. The Word of God is what matters. The Word of God is what makes a difference, not my opinion. The Word of God is what changes us. The Word of God is what we should listen to. You say, well, what if I don't agree with something that the Word of God says? Well, change your mind. It's elevated. We're under it. So the people here, they're not just physically under it, they've spiritually placed themselves under it. And in verse 5, it says that he, I love this. It says, Ezra opens the book. I love that phrase. He just opens the book. When we open the Bible, we literally open the mouth of God. When you open the Bible in your Bible Connect group, you're opening the mouth of God. When you open the Bible in your home, you're opening the very mouth of God. When we open the Bible on Sunday mornings, you're literally hearing the Word of God. We say that quick. We don't stop and think about it. It's literally God's word. You say, but I really want to hear from God. Open the book. You say, no, no, you don't understand what I'm saying. Like, I want to hear audibly from God, I want him to speak to me. Open the book and read it out loud. All he does is open the book. All he does is read it. And all they do is submit themselves to it. They put themselves underneath it. He opens it. He reads it. They honor it. They stand in honor and reverence of it as it's read. And they're attentive. And then notice what happens next. Verse 6. It says they shouted, Amen. 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 And we can work on that right there, all right? We can work on that right there, right? There you go. Catching on. Catching on. And all that means is so be it. So be it. So be it. And then look at what they do next. They, they lifted up their hands. They fell on their face in worship. All right? Anybody nervous? We're in a Baptist church. Get nervous yet? <laughs> They're very expressive in their worship right here. Right? They didn't just sit there. And I want to be careful. I'm not here. I think there's a lot of description here. I'm not saying all this is prescription. But we do need to, I think there's a point here to make about expressiveness in worship. That it's a biblical thing. They're expressive in their worship. Here's what I want you to know: You can have a solid, clear biblical teaching church, and at the same time, express yourself through song, worshipping through song. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. They actually go together, as we see right here in Nehemiah chapter eight. Sometimes we get in our head that a church has got to be like rich in, you know, in its biblical teaching, and then like kind of cold and a little frozen in the expression of their worship. And then, if they're really like expressive in their worship and you know, uh, a little more free to, to lift their hands and to show exp- like physical expressions of surrender, well, then they must be preaching a watered down message. That's not the case. You can have both. They haven't even broken out the music yet. They haven't brought out the harps the and the guitars and the pianos. All he's doing is preaching. What would you do this morning if I'm preaching and somebody next to you just, we wouldn't know what to do there? And yet, we're reminded that even when we hear the Word of God being preached, it's a time of worship so I'll say it again if, if, I've said this before if you come into this place and we're entering into a time of worship and the gospel center truth that's coming through these songs or maybe you have just met with God this morning you come in here and it's through these songs that you, you're feeling just stirred up by gospel truth and you go can I lift my hands lift your hands you express yourself through those, those physical expressions of surrender and worship but if you're more reserved don't feel guilty don't feel bad now i would say this there are times occasionally where you need to show some expression right if you're a spirit-filled christian and you're singing i'll fly away and you got a frown on your face i don't know what to do with that right like you're going to heaven right that's about you going to heaven when like, crack a smile that's happy that's good we're glad about that all right i'm gonna keep moving what an amazing response Isn't it is Isn't an amazing response and if you're, if you're Ezra, just think about what, from his perspective, what he's seeing, especially in light of what you read in Ezra 7, verse 10, that tells us that 14 years before this moment is when he, in many ways, began his ministry in this area of teaching, learning the Word, seeking to teach others the Word. You go back to Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, you see it started right there. So for 14 years, man, he's been faithful to do ministry. Not seeing a lot of results along the way. And then all of a sudden, in a moment, boom, revival breaks out. I mean, he saw more response in six hours than he saw in a decade and a half of faithful ministry. And I want that to encourage you this morning. I want that to encourage those of you who are in a place of ministry. And by the way, all of you, if you think about it as a disciple of Christ, you are in some place of, of... ministry you should be, of being faithful in the ministry, of, of ministering to people with His Word. It could be in the context of your home, of your workplace. It could be in a, a role here at this church, in a Bible Connect group. But this is a reminder to never stop being faithful. Be faithful in season and out of season. It can be a discouraging... I'm thinking about some of you teachers in here, Bible teachers. It can be a discouraging path to walk sometimes. You're thinking, is anything I'm saying getting through? God, am I going to see any fruit in what we're seeking to do here? And I would say this. Continue being faithful because it's the right thing to do. Double down on faithfulness, but also remember you never know how and when God's going to show up. That's right. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Then look at verse 7 and 8. It says we, um, right there we see these 13 guys right here. So he's read it. They've listened to it. They've responded in worship. And then you see these 13 guys disperse, kind of like his Bible Connect group teachers. And they disperse out into the crowd and they create these smaller Bible studies. And what their goal is to do is to get these people to really understand and grasp what they've heard. Like, they're not just reading the Bible out loud and going, all right, that was it. I know that was a long time. Now you guys just kind of go about your business, go about your day, and you kind of draw your own conclusions as to what you think that meant. No, God's Word, you need to know this. Every page of it, every passage you come to, God, His Holy Spirit, through the author of each of these books, is communicating a specific message. It all ties together in an overarching message, a redemptive message. But in every passage, there's an intended truth that we're called to mine out. That's our job. Our job isn't just to read it on a surface level and then run away and just kind of apply it to our lives however we feel like doing No, we dig into the layers of it and we seek to mine out the truth that is there. And that's what these men are going out to help them do. They're going out to help them. They're opening up the Scriptures. And this is extremely important. This is why we want to encourage you to not just come and gather with us on Sunday, but to plug into a Bible Connect group. To plug into a men's discipleship group. Because this is wonderful and there's a a level of sanctification and growth you're going to experience in this larger gathering. But look at what happens here. These men go out into smaller groups and they open up the scriptures to help them grasp at a deeper level what God's word means. And when that happens and you begin to dig in and seek to understand the truth right here, it causes you to grow more deeply in love with the God who wrote the truth and there's a power that's unleashed in your life by understanding the intended meaning of the text. This is important. And this is why, the reason we see that, we know this is important, is this is what Jesus does. First thing he does after he's resurrected from the grave, Luke chapter 24. He he raises from the dead. Where is his disciples? They're scared. They're confused. They thought that Jesus was coming as a political revolutionary. Even up until his death, they were confused about that. And then he dies. And they're they're scared. They're they're wondering, did we just waste our life? We left our careers. We left our businesses. And Jesus goes and finds them, the resurrected Lord, and sits down and has a Bible study with them in Luke chapter 24. And he opens up the Scripture and he walks them through the Old Testament Scriptures and shows them that the suffering servant that's talked about in Isaiah chapter 53 in the conquering Messiah that the Old Testament all talks about pointing us pointing them forward to were the same person. And it clicks with them. And they're revived and they change the world. They flip it upside down. Because Jesus came along and opened up the Scriptures. It was the Word of God. That was the tool that God used for a restorative work in their life, for them to connect the dots to where they're understanding, oh my God, His death didn't mean that He's not the Messiah. His death actually validates the truth that He is the Messiah. And if you're a disciple, Jesus wants you, John 17, 17, to learn the truth because you're sanctified by it. First symptom of revival, and I spent the longest on that one, is peace. You're going to see people who are hungry to learn the Word. Number two, people are, the second symptom is you're going to see people who are moved to rejoice in the word. So we don't just learn it, but rejoice in it. Verse 9, it says that Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites, probably, that's those 13 group leaders, that's probably what talking about, they run out and tell everybody to stop crying. All right, so just follow what happens here, and you got to go, well, what's going on? So, Ezra's read the word for six hours, they've responded in worship, they've Learned more about it. They've grasped a deeper understanding of what it means. And then they all start crying. And then these leaders have to go out and tell them to stop crying. What in the world is happening? Well, it makes sense when you understand that those 13 leaders just went out before they go out and tell them to stop crying. And did deep dive Bible studies on the law. You do a deep dive Bible study on the law, you're going to feel some brokenness. You're going to feel some mourning over your sin. Because the law of God is the only thing that can work like a spiritual MRI machine and show you what's beneath the surface. It can show you who you really are that we don't want to look at. Namely, show us our sin. And they see their sin. They see their brokenness. And they're weeping. There's tears that are flowing down their cheeks as they realize how sinful they are. And as they realize... It's like... just punched in the gut with conviction as they realize why their nation was dragged off into exile in the first place. Sin. And they see it in themselves. And by the way, that's a good thing. Conviction is a gift from God. Conviction is something that God does through His Word that leads us to repentance, and it is a good thing. We're going to spend all next week in chapter 9 talking about that, but here we're reminded about where confession and repentance leads. And it should lead us, and that's to joy they say no crying on this day and look what they tell him in verse 10 i love this he said then he said to them go your way eat the fat drink the wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the lord is your strength i think that's one of my favorite verses in all scripture go drink something sweet and eat some fattening stuff that's what that verse says right there look at it i'm not lying He's basically saying, now that you've seen how messed up you are in the mirror of God's law, now that you've been overwhelmed and crushed with conviction over your sin, and now that you've you've done business with God, man, you got my permission. Go party it up. Go eat something fattening. Go eat you up deep fried Snickers and drink you some milkshakes. Party it up. It's a great verse. Go fire up the grill. Go put some ribeyes on the grill, not the sirloin, something fatty, right? You need to get some sweet tea. Go have a party. This is a day of celebration. You're like, I'm not so sure he's like interpreting that right. Is that what this is saying? You make up your own menu. But the point that I'm making right here, I'm still standing on that these pastors are undoubtedly telling them, y'all go home, stop crying, have a feast and celebrate. Why are they telling them to do that? Number one is this, because God's spoken to them. That's the first reason. They're reminded, go home and celebrate. And celebrate in light of this. Rejoice in light of this that God has not forgotten you. God has not forsaken you. The fact that Ezra is standing up and reading God's word and that you're hearing it and that you're being stirred is evidence that God's not done with you. Are you in this place and is God stirring in your life and stirring in your heart even this morning? As you're hearing his word, listen, rejoice. That means he's not done with you. It means he's working in you. And they're being told in light of that, be filled with joy and rejoice. Rejoice. Think about that word, rejoice. Joy. For generations, they've been in exile. A time marked with sadness and sullenness and oppression and vulnerability. And what is he reminding them? Hey, we're coming into, God's doing a work here. You've heard from God. I know it's been a dark time and a dark season in the life of your nation, but you heard from God, and with God comes joy, and with joy comes strength. Where along the way do we get the idea that soullessness and somberness and seriousness is synonymous with being a strong Christian? Like, I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. Let's just use some logic I'm pretty sure that if we're people... The people who take the Word of God most seriously are going to be the most joyful because the Word of God says over and over again to be joyful. The Word of God says over and over again to rejoice in the Lord. It's one of the most commanded commands in all of Scripture. Rejoice. Have joy in the Lord. So he tells them, listen, I know you guys, this is heavy, I know this is a lot of teaching, I know this is a lot of words, I know this is a lot of conviction, but dry up your tears, put a smile on your face, and go home and put some, put some steaks on the grill and party it up and celebrate God has spoken to you, but then there's a second, more deeper reason. They say, "Go home, eat a bunch of food," and, and, and we get the second reason. We get a little hint of what it is in verse 11, where Ezra says, "This day is holy." See there in verse 11, "This day is holy." If you draw, if you uh, mark in your Bible, it's a good idea to maybe connect that phrase back to verse two with the timestamp we see there, the first day of the seventh month. This day is holy. There's something about this day where the Spirit of God is falling in a mighty way as they rally around God's Word. There's something in this de- about this day that's significant. It's a holy day. And it's the first day of the seventh month. And they just read and they just had a Bible study about, on the law and the law explains the significance of the first day of the seventh month and they're realizing this is a holiday. We didn't even know it. This is a Jewish holiday. It's called the Festival of the Trumpets. So on that first day of this festival, at noon, they're supposed to blow a trumpet. They're supposed to go out and and have a a party and a celebration to end like an agricultural season. But more importantly, this is what that first day of that seventh month is to remind the, the hearts of the people of God is that that's the first day, and what that means is a tenth day is coming. And the tenth day of that month is what's called the Day of Atonement. Today, when they would sacrifice animals as a symbol of that which sacrifice God would send, future generations that would be an atonement for the sins of, of his people in all generations. And so Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites are saying, hey, I know this is a lot of Bible, I know this is a lot of conviction over your sin, but I want you to go home and celebrate because the Bible shows us that our sins are going to be dealt with, that our sins are going to be paid for. We've got 10 days, here's day one, we've got 10 days to anticipate by faith that God through blood is going to make us clean. So the leaders go home and they celebrate. Weep through the night, but joy comes in the morning. The day of atonement's coming. And I would say if the people here are told to go home and celebrate for the atonement of their sins, how much more should we be celebrating, knowing the good news in full that on the cross Jesus paid in full our sin debt? We know that the blood of all of those animals, the blood of the goats, the blood of the bulls, the blood of pigeons cannot pay for our sins. They were never meant to pay for our sins. They were all meant to be foreshadowings. They were all meant to be this big bright neon sign flashing and pointing generations before the cross to the cross. That a Savior would come. That a Lamb would come. The ultimate sacrifice would be slain for the sins of the world. And sins would be atoned for. Completely and permanently, eternally, and ultimately. And we know as we look back on the pages of Scripture that that happened at the cross of Calvary. So when we... Listen to this. When we read God's Word, we should feel conviction because it's shining a light on our life. And we're never going to arrive this side of heaven. Anytime we put the Word of God up to our life. It's a mirror that's going to show us things that need to change. And it's healthy for us to feel broken over sin that breaks the heart of our Heavenly Father. It's healthy to break over sin and to feel convicted. It's not healthy as a disciple to stay there. There are therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we feel convicted and we feel... The heaviness of our sin, it's very important that we make a beeline for the cross. And at the cross of Calvary is where we rejoice once again in the truth that the gospel declares to us over and over again that your sins are paid in full. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That his grace is sufficient for you. And it reminds us that the predominant disposition of people who have met Jesus and understand the eternal impact of His victory over sin and death through His Word should be rejoicing. Should be rejoicing. So this is my prayer for us, church family, that we would be people who are about a lot of Word and a lot of joy. A lot of Word and a lot of joy. That we'd hear the Word, that we'd study the Word, that we'd feel convicted, that we'd run to the cross, that we'd be filled with joy. That we'd run to the Word, that it'd encourage us, that it'd shape us, that it'd inspire us to be more like Christ, but it'd convict us. It'd show us where we need to change. We'd repent. We'd run back to the cross. We'd be filled with joy. And we'd do it again and again, and along the way, through our life and through our words, we'd point people in this world who are dying in their sins to that same joy that they can experience through the Gospel. Number three, we see that there are people committed to obey the word. Let me just finish by reading this last section. On the second day, the heads of the fathers, the heads of fathers of the houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seven months. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. And go out to the hills and bring branches of olive and wild olive and myrtle and palm and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made the booths for themselves, each on his roof and in the courts. In the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was a very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. What in the world is going on right here? In verse 13, it says they're on the second day of this festival. And what we see here is, on the second day of this festival, that the dads in the community, revival's happening in their life. And what's the symptom we see there? They're, they're, They're craving the Word. What would happen in a church if the dads began to crave the Word? Even in the context of community. A community of fathers craving the Word, hungry for the Word, hungry to learn it and to know it, and to also, as we're going to see here, obey it. Because as they're doing this Bible study, these dads in this community, they begin to read and they begin to go, hold on a second, it says that people during this month of celebration, during this month of this festival, they should be living and dwelling in booths. They should be living in tents. Evidently, we haven't done that as a nation for a long time, but yet in God's Word it says we're supposed to. And then they dig in and they begin to understand why. It's supposed to be a way for them to commemorate the faithfulness that God showed their ancestors when they were living in the wilderness, without homes, when they were living on the move when they were living in tents. And so this was something that God's people, as God led them into the promised land throughout the generations moving forward, every seventh month were to live in these tents to remind themselves of God's faithfulness so that their hearts would be filled with thanksgiving for the faithfulness that God had shown them. Now some of y'all are like, "Uh, I would love to go tent camping. That sounds amazing. Some of y'all are like, I don't know if I went tent camping that my response would be gratefulness in my heart. (laughs) Maybe in an RV Maybe in a real fancy tent with air conditioning. But don't miss the point. Here's the point. They find out what they're supposed to do when they do it. That's the point. They find out what they're supposed you, you want to know an indication of revival happening in a church? Is when people who are saved by grace, the redeemed of God, begin to rally around this book, and they begin to learn it, they begin to rejoice in it, and they begin to obey it. That's how you know revival's happening. When people aren't just memorizing verses about purity and understanding what God's Word says about sexuality, but are actually practicing it by the grace of God. When people are actually fleeing from immorality by the power of God. When people are leading their homes and obeying the Scripture that calls you to lead them spiritually. When people aren't just knowledgeable about verses that say don't gossip about about, a gossip about people but are actually doing what god's word says and not saying things about people who if that person was at the lunch table or in the room you would not say about them you start getting that stuff right revival's happening because people are serious about following god and not categorizing sin and big sin list and little sin list it all breaks the heart of god that's how revivals, that's how you know revival's happen. And I love this. They come across this verse. We're supposed to live in these tents and they don't memorize it. They don't have a Bible study about it. All that's good. They actually obey it. And it says in verse 17, the result of that was great rejoicing. We so often view obedience to God as this joy sucking, joy killing labor. And, and we wouldn't say it that way, but we all do, or else we wouldn't sin. We hear the promises that the enemy give us through sin. Promise of some kind of form of satisfaction or security or relief or alleviation of pain. And whatever it is, it promises that version of joy, and yet always delivers something else. Disappointment, heartache. The ultimate end of it is death. It could be ultimate spiritual death if you're not a Christian. You better believe if you are a Christian, it will still lead to death. Death of opportunity. Death of your witness. Death of reputation. Death of a relationship. Jesus' agenda is this. I've come to give you life. I don't think you heard me. I've come to give you life. Take up your cross and follow me. That's where life's found. I've come to give you life. Follow me. Following Jesus means to actually follow him to follow his word Jesus is for you he's for your greatest joy even in the midst of sorrow if you're seeking to obey him you can experience a supernatural joy don't hear me wrong we're not saved by what we do we're saved by what Jesus has done for us on the cross don't ever get that wrong but also don't ever water down the what we do after we've trusted in what he's done it matters obedience matters It matters because he commands us to do it. And it matters because as we follow him and obey his word, we experience the greatest joy this world has to offer. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus has your best interest when it comes to how he tells you to relate to money? Do you really believe that what Jesus says and you believe that he has your best interest in mind when it comes to how he tells you to relate to the outcast or to how to view sexuality, how to treat your neighbor, how to guard your heart? Jesus promises great joy that can be experienced through obeying His Word. You know what that means? It means when we don't obey His Word, in essence, this is what we're saying, and this is what I say when I don't obey His Word. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't mean it when you say obedience to you is for my greatest joy. You know, we often think about Jesus, and if I asked you to think about Attributes when it comes to Jesus, we, we think about a lot of them. I think about them. power, majesty, compassion, love, grace, mercy. You know, what, you know what one that doesn't come to mind a lot? is He's really smart. He knows what he's talking about. He's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. He's not a cosmic killjoy. No, it's the opposite of that. Obedience to him and his word and submission to his lordship is where true greatest joy is found. He is truly the greatest, most good advisor that you can have in this life. These people got that, and you see the result of it, revival. These people got that. They learn it, they rejoice in it, they obey it. And I'm telling you, when that happens, that's an indication that God's doing a restorative work It's an indication that God is reviving a people, and it only happens through His Word. This is the tool of His restoration in your life and in this church. No Word, no change. No Word, no transformation. No Word, no sanctification. No Word, no restoration. No Word, no revival. Here's the good news this morning: we got the Word. God's given us His Word. He's given it to us. He's given it to us in a language we can understand. And there's power in that word, church, when we learn it, when we rejoice in it, and when we obey it for our joy and for God's glory. Hey, this is a book that took over the lives of 50,000 people on one day 2,500 years ago. What would happen if this book took over our lives with the three or 400 people that showed up on campus today? Let's end with that thought in mind. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, listen to me, turn to the Bible. And through the Bible is expressed to you the greatest news that you're going to ever hear in your entire life. And if you're here this morning and you are understanding that what the Bible communicates to you about yourself is that you're a sinner that's broken God's law like all of us, we should obey it but we break it. And that the penalty for your sin is separation from God and eternal death. And you believe what's written on the pages of Scripture. That it's revealed to you by God Himself. That He sent His Son to live the life you can't live. A holy life to die the death that you deserve to die on that cross. He took the death penalty for your sin. And He rose from the dead. Conquering the grave that you can't conquer. You're going to meet that grave one day. You can't conquer it. But if you look back on the pages of Scripture and with a heart of faith, approach Him this morning with humility and say, Save me. I believe that there's only one way to you, only one way to a relationship and a reconciliation with my Heavenly Father, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. I believe what He did on the cross counted for me. The Holy Spirit's working in your life, and we want to talk to you. I'll be down front this morning. That's a place you can come. We'd love to talk to you and help you take that step. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to be baptized. Listen. The Bible says... That baptism is a step of obedience that a disciple of Christ is commanded to take. I can't think of a better day for you to obey Scripture and to get baptized and to step forward and to indicate that that's a step that you want to take than this morning. And I'll be down front be ready to talk with you. Maybe you need to join our church. A place that you can indicate that you want to join our church is down front right here after the service. We'd love to celebrate that with you. But church, this morning, how's your relationship with the Word of God? I pray we would not be a people like so many others in the evangelical world who profess Christ and have a head full of knowledge and a life with little application. May we not have brains busting at the seams with knowledge and you have a shortage of obedience. Why would we do that? The Word of God. You orient your life around it. You learn it. You rejoice in it. You obey it. It transforms you. So this morning, how do you need to respond to the Word? All I'm asking you to do is to respond to it. You can come down front. You can pray. You can stand and respond to this song. All I would say is respond. Respond.